Uh, welcome. Good morning, everyone. My name is Preston. Uh, let me ask you to find in your Bibles the uh, book of Acts, chapter 17. It's been obvious from the last couple of weeks that we live in uncertain times, but we need to know that the church was made for uncertain times. We're, we're, the, uh, we're the kind of uh, organism that, that flourishes best in a hostile environment, even though it's, it's difficult and it presents its challenges. As I prayed about where the Lord would take us after our uh, series in the book of Proverbs, I've been have just felt drawn for several weeks to the, uh, Paul's letters to the uh, church at Thessalonica. Two little letters toward the back of the New Testament. And uh, so I wanted us today to look in, in Acts chapter 17 to say the chaotic beginning of that church because we live in chaotic times right now. I think we'll find some help not only from what we see today but in the weeks to come as we look at Paul's letters to the church as he tried to help them thrive in uncertain times, not just survive, not just make the best, but to be able to uh, thrive and do what the Lord asked of them to do. So I, I thought a great analogy of that was a cactus, because it's a kind of plant that, that, that really flourishes like no other in a hostile environment. If you see pictures, cool graphic there, right? It's just desert, not the kind of thing that's conducive to growth, and yet... Uh, it, the cactus works quite well there. So I think a cactus church is good. Now, see, because of my work, my day job, um, I've got a, a shelf full of books about the church, okay? I mean, like things like church planting, missions, all of that kind of stuff. So thinking about this week, I just took a look at some of the titles on my shelf. Many of you have heard of the Purpose Driven Church, of course. There's also uh, Simple Church, Breakout Church, House Church, Cell Church, Externally Focused Church, Future Church, Organic Church, Multi-Site Church, and Deliberate Church. And the last one, Deliberate Church, was written by Mark Dever, who was honest enough to say, I was writing a book about the church and I just needed a cool title, and all the other good ones were taken, so this is what I'm calling it. So, and appreciate Mark Dever and work of uh, Nine Marks, Capitol Hill Church, very much, but... Um, so I think, well, I'm, first of all, I'm firmly committed to never writing a book that would belong on that shelf. But if I do, I think I'll call it the Cactus Church, because I think that's a great analogy. Plus, it's cool. Nobody else has taken it, as far as I can tell. But the idea is we are meant to thrive in a hostile environment. We're really not made for ease. We, we have lived in a fairly anomalous period in which there is not a great deal in our immediate context of, of suffering and persecution. There's suffering of different kinds, but in terms of persecution, kinds of things that the Thessalonians face. And yet, it may be those times are coming. We're welcoming people who are facing those kinds of things. So we as a church, we are, we are made for uncertain times. What that means for us in this situation, we'll trust the Lord to lead. But uh, we are meant for difficult circumstances. And so... We can embrace them and grow. So my intent over the next few weeks is that we'll look not beyond today in Acts 17, but then in First and Second Thessalonians. And you need to know also there is a check connection here because uh, Cyril and Methodius, two brothers, they're known as the Apostle to the Slavs. They were the ones who brought Christianity to this part of the world in the ninth century. So especially if you are a person of Slavic origin, today is something of your spiritual ancestry. So in good Czech fashion, we've got, uh, they've got their own holiday. 
uh, which, again, there's lots of irony, but in a country that boasts itself as the most atheistic in the, in the world, we've got holidays for Jan Hus and <laughs> Cyril and Methodius. So you've got to love it. And if you had no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Um, the people who are regulars here are used to that. They just are kind enough to, AV team keeps the sound on and I just keep talking and somehow it all works out. So um, we are running a little bit behind today. I do want you to know that um, basically we'll be finished before the Russian language church starts, okay? So at two o'clock. So uh, first let's look at the book of Acts to get a bit of background since we're jumping uh, into the middle of the book. So the book of Acts tells the story of the work of the Holy Spirit to take the church from a small group of Jewish followers of Jesus based in Jerusalem to a a massive group of followers of of Christ gathered in local churches from among many nations, um, scattered all over the known world at that time. So our text today takes place uh, during the second of Paul's three missionary journeys. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you've seen those before. And this part of the book of Acts... Luke is showing us the gospel advancing west into Europe, being embraced by all kinds of people, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, and female, but also rejected by all kinds of people, uh, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, sometimes uh, local officials. Just a, it's, you, just, you see a mixed response here, right? Okay. Um, and we can understand. Uh, then they left. So on this trip, they left, and you can put the map slide up, if you want, there you go. I know that's all very clear. I picked the grainiest photo I could find on the internet. Um, added my blue labels there. So they started in Antioch, you see on the right side of the map, worked their way up northwest. Uh, at Troas, the Lord led them to Macedonia. They started at Philippi. And then after a um, brief and exciting time there, they made their way to Thessalonica. Now we can understand why they would stop at Thessalonica. Uh, Paul, you know that Paul uh, focused on cities. Uh, this was the main city of its province. Uh, it's in the, it was in an uh, area called Macedonia, which is now part of modern-day Greece, not the country of North Macedonia, but this was an area called Macedonia, now part of modern-day Greece. It was a large city on a major trade route, had a major port, so that meant connections from, with people from all over the world. That, for Paul, meant enormously strategic for connections for gospel advance because people are coming and going all the time, different cultures. So for him, it was an ideal location. And like most cities at the time, it engaged heavily in idolatry, and we'll get to talk more about that later. So let's look now in Acts 17, and I'll start reading at verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, saying, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. 
and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying, There's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and then let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. We'll stop there. So let's go through the story, look at what Paul did and what we can learn from this. First, let's notice that Paul connected with people in the synagogue. Luke tells us in, verse, in the first verse, there was a synagogue there, which meant there was a certain minimum number of Jewish families that were required to establish a synagogue. He went there and that this was his custom. That is, anytime Paul could, he started in a city with the synagogue. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that he would find people who had been exposed to the word of God. So there would be sort of some sense of shared worldview, that is, of a God who had created the world, of the reality and the, the nature of sin, and of a, a future judgment and hope of resurrection, and of a longing for Messiah, for a Redeemer. Now, when Paul went to places where there was not a synagogue, he would often start with creation or common grace and then get to resurrection and final judgment if he got that far. Sometimes he couldn't even get that far. But where he could, he started with the scriptures. Now, a second reason he did this is, has to do with Israel's missionary purpose, because God had chosen Israel to be a nation of priests to the nations. As he says through Moses in Exodus 19, and that's on the next slide, this is after he had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. He brings them there to Sinai, and, he, and it says Moses went up in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 3. Moses went up to God... And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's important. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. So all the nations belong to God, but Israel had been chosen and redeemed and brought into a unique covenant relationship. That was, this was not true of another nation. And this was for a purpose. He said, if you will keep covenant with me, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. This describes their purpose. They were a people who were to represent God to the nations and the nations to God. And this also gave them identity. He said, you will be a holy nation. So they had an identity. We belong to the Lord. We are holy. We have a purpose. We are to be priests to the nations. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God had chosen Israel with the nations in view. This was not so he could just bring them to have him to himself, but it was he chose them with the, the nations in view. That was, that was the purpose. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the letters. Okay? So even though Israel didn't do very well with their identity or their purpose, before we start uh, thinking we're better than them, we don't do very well either. But God remained faithful to them, and even in their exile, even in their times of occupation, they were still God's people, and they were still on mission, though the specifics of that mission did change a bit. So when Paul entered the synagogue, he was intentionally building on this identity and purpose of Israel. He, was, he had just read what we'd call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and that's what he was doing. It made perfect sense to him as a missionary. Uh, this also helps us understand his intense burden for, for Israel in Romans 9 to 11. He was not only concerned for his people, he, was, he saw their response to the gospel as having an impact on the advance of the gospel to the rest of the nations. So another thing Paul did is that he used the scriptures. We see this verses 2 and 3. So let's notice how he used them. 
We're not told what book and chapter and verse he used because, well, there were no chapters and verses at that point. Chapters and verse numbers, sorry to disappoint you, they were added several centuries later. Uh, the New Testament had not been written. In fact, uh, some suggest that First and Second Thessalonians are among the first of Paul's writings, maybe the first of the New Testament writings. So all he had was what we call the Old Testament. Um, no chapters and verse, but somehow he made this work. Uh, how did that happen? That'll be great to see. Um, but we are told here how, how he spoke and a summary of what he said. So it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures and that he's, he reasoned, he was explaining and proving. So he's using the scriptures. He's not just going a verse here and a verse there, but he's giving them the scope of scriptures, what we'd call in a formal setting, biblical theology. Not all theology is of the devil. Just want you to know. Um, okay, you really could have laughed there. Um, thank you. It doesn't count if I have to tell you. So, um, The thing is, he was intentional. He knew what they believed. He knew what they longed for. And he knew the barriers that kept them from believing. And their big barrier had to do with their concept of Messiah. And so that is where he focused. He was very intentional in how he used the scriptures as he reasoned and explained and proved. Again, there's a shared value on scripture so he could have them Unroll the scrolls and say, let's look at this. Let's hear these stories. Understand this is, this is what Scripture teaches. He was saying that a suffering and risen Messiah is at the core of what Scripture teaches. He didn't pick some obscure verse from, from Ezekiel and something from Leviticus that nobody understands. You know, he's, he's saying this is, this is what Scripture teaches from beginning to end. So he's addressing their barriers to faith biblically and intentionally. And then we see what he said. He showed them that the scriptures teach this clearly and consistently that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He had to suffer. Jesus' arrest and sufferings and trial and, and death were not a miscalculation on his part. It was not an accident. It was not just some um, conspiracy. It was what he came to do. Okay? He came to do it. Remember what he called Simon Peter when he first began to say, you know, now that you've acknowledged I'm the Messiah, you need to understand the Messiah has come to suffer and die. And Simon says, You'll, we'll never let that happen. And, and Jesus called Simon Peter Satan. He said, you get behind me, Satan. You know, nothing will turn me aside from this. This is what I came to do. Again, this is, and in Luke 24, he says, this, this is all that is written, right? In the law and the prophets and writings that the Messiah would suffer and rise again and that repentance in his name would be proclaimed to the nations. So, this is core to the biblical message. This is what Paul said. The Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. The Jewish people believed that their Messiah would come in power and glory. He would destroy their enemies, would exalt them or reward them as his people. And it's not that they were wrong because the Messiah will come in glory and he will destroy his enemies and he will exalt his people. But there's a key part of the story that they were missing and that was the suffering of the Messiah. So knowing this was a barrier, this is what Paul focused on. We don't know what he said. We don't have specifics. Maybe he talked about, in Genesis 3, the animal that was slain to clothe Adam and Eve after they'd made their fig leaves. Maybe he talked about Abraham offering a lamb in the place of his son. Maybe he talked about the Passover lamb where a lamb was slain. And because of that, those who put the blood on the door, Jewish or Egyptian, if they had blood on the door, they survived the night. Their firstborn survived the night. So again, an act of faith. The, the, spot, the death of the spotless lamb. Maybe the day of atonement from Leviticus. Maybe the kinsman redeemer from Ruth. I think it's virtually certain that he used Isaiah 53. And I have just a couple of verses from there. Because they're, they're critical for, for this. 
Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, that is the, the servant, the Messiah, to crush him and cause him to suffer. I mean, literally, the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's just some of the most profound language in all of Scripture. The Lord was pleased to crush him, cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, and you know, the sin offering always died, right? No, no sin offering got off the altar and walked away. Sin offerings always die. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. There is, here is a statement, a prediction of resurrection, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So there are many other places in what we call the Old Testament that the suffering and risen Messiah is predicted, but this is one of the clearest. Now, another thing Paul did is he proclaimed Jesus. He says, he says all this. He says, see, the scriptures teach a suffering and risen Messiah. And maybe the Thessalonians are sitting there, you know, in their small group, synagogue, <laughs> after scroll study. And, uh, and they say, okay, Paul, the, the, the scriptures teach a suffering and risen Messiah. So what? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked because Jesus is that suffering and risen Messiah. And he could go straight into Jesus' life as a righteous man who did good, anointed with the power of God, all the miracles he did, everything he did, then his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And Paul could say, I saw him with my own eyes. I saw a man who I knew was dead. I have seen him alive. I can tell you this is what the scripture meant when it said the Messiah would suffer and rise again. It has happened. And let's not miss this. Paul said this he, because it says, you know, he, he proclaimed Jesus. He says, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ or the Messiah. See, this was not a Bible study about fulfillment of prophecy. Okay. This wasn't about how to interpret prophecy, whether prophecy has been fulfilled. He was proclaiming not just prophecy, but he was proclaiming a person. He was proclaiming Jesus Christ to them, Jesus who has died and risen again. It is the person that we meet when we come to him. It is it's not that you get the Christian religion, you meet a person. It's like when we got married, I didn't get the marriage religion, I went home with a person. There's right? a new person in my life. That's the way it is with knowing Christ. It is not the Christian religion as if it's... As it's as if it's in comparison to some other religion, it is a person that, with whom you are in relationship. And it changes everything. And marriage, just as marriage changes everything. Some things, I know, haven't changed. But, but mostly it changes, right? <laughs> so, talk about marriage another day. Let's move on quickly. So he was proclaiming a person to them, Christ himself. Don't, don't miss this. This is not about prophecy and not about a religion. This is a person who has suffered and died and risen and conquered death and offers to all who will believe in him, all who will put their hope in him, forgiveness and freedom and life as a gift in his name. We see that in Paul's other messages. He announced forgiveness. He announced interest into the kingdom, entrance into the kingdom of God and everlasting life. Now we see the response here. Verse 4 says, many responded. There were men and women, Jews and god fears. These were Gentiles who had at least some interest in the Jewish faith, but and some connection to the synagogue, but hadn't become Jewish. The response was enough that the Jews, and these may have been the synagogue leaders who may have had the most to, to lose by all this was happening. They went to the marketplace. They found some bad characters, formed them into a mob. 
started a riot in the city, rushed to the home of Jason, who had probably opened his home to Paul and the others, hoping to find them, bring them out, have them arrested, imprisoned, maybe even killed. Paul and the others weren't there. We don't know where they were at this point, but they weren't there. So they dragged Jason, their host, out to the city leaders, began shouting their accusations, right? These men who have caused trouble all over the world, literally these men who have turned the world upside down, have now come here. Jason, this guy, he's welcomed them into his house. They were trying to convince Jake, them that Jason also was evil, seditious, a revolutionary. And then the most serious thing, they were defying Caesar's decrees, proclaiming there is another king, Jesus. And this was really the most serious charge they had, right? It, it was as if Paul was uh, guilty of sedition, of trying to cause a revolution. Well, Paul was proclaiming another king, Jesus. Jesus is the king, the rightful king, who claims rightly the loyalty of every person in this room, every person watching online, every person who has ever lived and ever will live. He deserves your faith, hope, and love. He is worthy of it. But Paul was not defying Caesar as if he wanted to overthrow him politically. As Jesus said in his own trial before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why my servants aren't fighting you. This is... This is not about a change of kingdoms yet. The day will come when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That day is not yet. So until then, we have our king, Jesus. As long as we can live in two kingdoms, we try to do that. Uh, Sometimes, like right now, in some places, it's exceedingly difficult, but we take it a day at a time, right? Now, you may recall in Philippi, where he had just been, when there was a riot, the city officials, the Gentiles, they just took him, threw him into jail, beat him, put him in stocks, and didn't ask questions. <laughs> there was no bond posted. There was nothing. Um, the city officials here in Macedonia or in Thessalonica were, showed a little bit more restraint. They just got Jason to post a bond saying, we need you to promise, this is, this is your guarantee, that this bad fellow will leave, that he will not cause any more trouble. And that was the end of it. And it seems that the crowd dispersed. Um, it is a bit ironic that these leaders formed a mob who rushed to Jason's house, dragged him out, bring him to the city officials, this whole mob mentality, in order to accuse Paul of making trouble. <laughs> you, know, you want to think, okay, if I'm, if I'm the mayor of the city, I'm thinking, I think I know who's causing the trouble here, right? <laughs> so, but that's ironic. When your idols are threatened, you do irrational things. We'll see that another time. So let's think for briefly, I promise. Why was Paul so concerned for the Thessalonians? I mean, so from here he went to Berea, and almost the same thing happened, but there's no letter to the Bereans. From there he went to Athens. There's no letter to Athens. Now we have a church to the Philippians, but it's years later. They seem well established. So why write these letters? And if you've read the letters, you know he just expresses anguish over their condition. How, how troubled he was until he knew they were doing okay. Because what had happened, if we... Um, I think I was, but yeah. Um, from here, they went to Berea. Um, Paul went on to Athens. Silas and Timothy stayed behind in Berea. If we piece the story together from the letters, it looks like Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Athens. And then he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on this new church that was in such difficult circumstances. And then, Timothy, and then Paul went on to Corinth. Timothy joined him there. Are you thoroughly confused? I thought so. So... Hang on, come back next week, we'll, we'll keep sorting this out. It, it gets a little confusing trying to, to balance the moving parts, but trying to piece together the narrative. But the point is, is this, Paul goes to these places, 
And there's different responses, but Thessalonica is the place where he seems to experience the most anguish. Why is this? I think there are at least four reasons. One was his untimely departure. Uh, It says that Paul um, was in the synagogue for three Sabbath days. So that's minimum 15 days, max 27 days, right? So anywhere three-ish, maybe up to four weeks. That's not very long. Okay. And it's possible he was there longer. A lot of commentators think he was there longer. That the three Sabbaths just refers to his time in the synagogue. Maybe he was there longer. But the, the force of this passage just gives us a sense that this was a very quick experience. And Paul's writing even in the letters. It indicates his, his sense that it was an untimely departure. He left before he was ready. If he could have, he would have stayed. Remember, he stayed in Corinth, what, a year and a half? He stayed in Ephesus a couple of years. So he would stay longer if he could. He was not allowed. Yet the same thing happened to Maria, but as far as we know, he didn't write to them. So the untimely departure, just feeling like I've left before I was ready. There were some things I wanted to share, some things. I wanted to see some things happen in you, and he just couldn't do it. He had to leave. Another reason is the intense persecution they faced, even after Paul left, because many of these had been converted out of the synagogue. They were connected to the synagogue. Some were Jewish, some were Gentile, but had some connection to the synagogue. But this is where the persecution in this instance was coming from. Not all persecution was Jewish, but in this case it was. And so they're facing not only persecution, but they're facing probably intense persuasion from people that up to now they had respected. Up to now, these had been their teachers. These had been their you know, they're small group scroll study leaders, right? <laughs> and, they were, uh, and now they're saying, you have gone off into this heretical cult. You've, and, and so this, that's a form of persecution as well. And it was intense. I think a third reason we find is in the Thessalonians themselves. See, Luke makes an explicit contrast between the Thessalonians and the Bereans. If uh, you look down in verse 11, I don't think I have that on the slide. But it said, so from... From Thessalonica, they went to Berea. And it says in verse 11, and Paul did the same thing. He goes to the synagogue, he uses the scriptures, and it says this in verse 11 about Berea. It says, the Jews of Berea were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Well, Luke just come right out and say it, right? The Bereans received the word eagerly, and they examined the scriptures daily, not just on the Sabbath, for themselves, not just taking Paul's word for it, to see if it was true. Boy, what a great example, right? They, they received Paul's message with great eagerness. They're checking the word for themselves to see. This is not just Paul's message. This is the word of God. And it says, many of them therefore believed. And yet, that's not what we see about the Thessalonians. And I, maybe I'm totally wrong, but I wonder if Paul was not more concerned about the Thessalonians because maybe he didn't see that level of interest. He didn't see that level of commitment. They're looking, they're hearing the word in the Sabbath, but they're not examining it daily like the Bereans. And I think he knew uh, from the Bereans attitude, if you stay in the word, the word will do its work. That's what Luther said about the Reformation, right? He said, all I did was translate scriptures and drink beer with my buddy and God, God changed Europe. You know, that's not something we talk about in our Baptist missions conferences, the beer part. We talk about translation and church planning, not so much about beer. So I wonder if part of Paul's concern was the lack of the, the, the comparison with the, with the Bereans. And the fourth reason, of course, was 
the rampant idolatry in Thessalonica. It was very much a part of their life. Over 20 deities identified uh, that had a, some role in the lives of people in that city. One ancient text, yeah, more than, than uh, 20 de- deities. Paul remembered the Jewish Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Right? There's one God. Remember to whom Moses said that, to a people who had been birthed in idolatry, to a people who had lived among idolaters, to a people who were still idolaters, to a people who were about to move into a land occupied by idolaters. And idolatry was an ongoing problem in the life and history of the Jewish people, and it eventually destroyed them as a nation. Paul knew very well the dangers of idolatry. It would not be an easy battle, and yet he's, he's, he's yanked out, he's removed before he, he feels ready. So he had good reason to be concerned. Here is a church made up of new believers, maybe variable commitment and character, facing intense persecution in an idolatrous context without adequate preparation. And I think he knew if the Thessalonians didn't get help, they would be in trouble. It may have been like a triage. He thought, Berea, they're fine. They're in the word. Athens, not really enough happening there to worry about. So if I don't help the Thessalonians, they will be in deep trouble. So this sets the stage for what he writes in the letters. And God willing, we'll start looking at those next week. So he writes in his letters to help them have what they need, or at least to realize that in Christ they have what they need to endure hard, uncertain, tumultuous times, even like the times we live in today. They're like a cactus. They're a fragile plant in a hostile environment. But Paul writes to them so that, that they'll not be beat up by their context, but that they can thrive. So as we close, we've got plenty of time before the Russian language church starts. As we close, let's, again, just take a, think of a couple of practical lessons from, from this. The most important factor humanly speaking, in evangelism, in helping someone come to Christ, is exposure to the Word of God in the context of a credible witness. Okay? That can happen a lot of different ways, but that has to happen. So there are some lessons for us about that here. One, find ways to connect with people. Paul had an obvious connection in the synagogue. He was Jewish. They were Jewish. Shared worldview, value of the Word. Now here, it takes different, there are different ways you connect with people. Uh, But we have to connect with people on their terms, right? So find something that gives you a bridge into someone else's life. Here it might be English. I'd encourage you, like with uh, uh, crew has the ministry with Vishae, the economics faculty. Uh, They are desirous of meeting with with native English speakers. And and, uh, I do that. It's it's just good, okay? Uh, Find a bridge. Maybe it's English. Maybe it's films. Read Ted Chernow's book, Apologetics, How Can You Use Films? Maybe it's football, maybe it's beer. There I am, a Baptist mentioning beer again. Uh, I'm just deprived. So, or something else. But find a bridge, cross it, okay? Cross it, not just with nice words, but cross it with the gospel, okay? Because the gospel provides what they think their idols will provide. Second, use the scriptures like Paul did. Paul was able to use the scriptures. We see it. In his letters, the reason his witness was credible, we'll look at that and, and in the first letter about why, how he shared with them, how he lived among them was important. I know it can be awkward just to interject a random Bible verse into conversation. I've done it. It is awkward. There are, there are more diplomatic ways to do it, okay? And there are smoother ways. I am not the world's smoothest evangelist. I am maybe the world's most awkward evangelist, but that's all right. We all have our gifts, right? But 
Have the word in your heart. You know, we've talked a lot in Proverbs about the sort of the universal appeal there. You know, think about some of those things that we talked about, and maybe that, that is a good, good bridge. You know, the thing is, you have the word in your heart, and it will find a way out. And, but also be intentional, like Paul did. He intentionally addressed their barriers to faith. He thought through, he knew what would cause them to stumble, a suffering Messiah, and that's where he focused. And as you talk to your unbelieving friends, ask good questions, learn what it is that, that causes them, that keeps them from believing. And it may be really difficult. It may take a lot of cups of tea. I've got a friend who, he wrote a, a book on language learning, actually he called it a thousand cups of tea. But his idea is you're learning the language well enough to share the gospel. To get to that point in his culture, it takes a thousand cups of tea. He said, we should measure language learning, not by you know, how well our grammar is and how good our vocabulary is, but how many cups of tea <laughs> do we drink? Maybe, maybe so. I don't know. Uh, and I didn't mention beer. Oh, gosh, I just did. Okay. So <laughs> the point is, get to the scriptures, okay? In some way, find a way to bring God's truth into those conversations. Proclaim Christ. That is what Paul did. There is no one like Jesus, okay? There is no one like Jesus. Proclaim him fearlessly, boldly. Yes, sensitively. Yes, uh, tactfully, diplomatically, but there comes a time when you need to proclaim Jesus. He proclaimed to the Thessalonians, Jesus, this is the same Jesus we proclaim to you today. He is the one who suffered and died and rose again. And to all who will renounce themselves, renounce their hope in themselves, put their hope in him, he will give you forgiveness and freedom and life as gifts in his name. So that, that is who we proclaim and, and lastly, the word you're looking for, right? Be like the Bereans. Okay? We only talked about them for a moment. But especially if you have not believed. The Bereans were not believers, okay? So, now, they were Jewish, but they were not believers. But it says they received the word with great eagerness. And they were examining the scriptures daily for themselves to see if it was true. And maybe you, you hear things here. Maybe you hear things through the course of the week. And you're thinking, is this true? Does this matter? It's challenging. You're thinking, I can't believe because of this. Is this true? The Bible is true, okay? <laughs> I, you don't have to take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. Get into the Word of God. You will know it is true. It will not lead you wrong. Now, we can misunderstand it. We can misinterpret it. But Bible interpreted rightly will never lead you astray. So there, if you are looking for the truth, it is accessible. It is on your phone. You may have it in print. It is Easy to find. If you have questions, examine the scriptures. You know, God's not afraid of your honest questions. In fact, he probably put them in your heart because you have some idol in your life and it's not satisfying you. It's not delivering what it promised. Jesus, Jesus delivers what those idols promise. Okay, They are empty and they are void, but Jesus Israel. So if you want to know more about what it means to know Christ, please see one of us after the service today. And please, brothers and sisters, let's get into the Word. Let's seek God, find ways to connect with people that we might thrive, that we might help them thrive in uncertain times like we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for your Word. We thank you for all that is ours in Christ. And we pray that you will help us to be faithful what you ask of us. 
what you have placed in our hearts even this morning. We pray you'll help us to find connections with people and to use your word to proclaim you faithfully, to have a hungry, eager, open heart like the Bereans. And Father, we are surrounded by people who, in these days, if they do not get help, they, they may literally perish. Help us to provide the help they need. Help us to understand what is needed. Um, some people need a baguette more than they need a Bible verse in that moment. And help us, help us to meet the needs, to serve others, to earn the, the right to share good news with them. And just to be faithful, we, I know that, uh, just thank you for many of our people who are serving you in this way, and I pray that in each situation, in each conversation, you'll give us grace to represent you well, please. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.